Hey, if you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are also on all the communion tables throughout the room. Also on the communion tables are these little sermon note things. And on the front side, you get a picture of the minor prophet that we're looking at. Not to likeness, by the way, just, you know, what we think a prophet looks like. They all have these nice big beards and I don't know, he's a ginger, like I keep saying. And then on the, on the back side, what you'll get is the verses we're going through and some questions to reflect on what we're talking about today. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and Then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, uh, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is a back at chapter 2, verse 20, and it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, today I ask that you would teach us how to be a people who settle down and become silent before you and listen to the things that you are saying to us, that our focus would be first upon you and what you have done in our lives, and that we would be sure and solid-footed because you are sure. And that all of our lives we based upon who you are and your rescue of us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing a series through the Minor Prophets. We are doing actually six weeks in this old, Old Testament book called Habakkuk. Habakkuk sits in what is known as the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets is the series we did throughout the summer. There are 12 Minor Prophets, last 12 books of the Old Testament. Habakkuk sits in the middle of those. And if you want to know the timeline from when all these prophets spoke, there is a little handout on all the communion tables throughout the room. We've been having those every single week. It's, it's a pretty good guesstimation about when they actually spoke, if you'd like to grab a hold of that. But we are ending with Habakkuk in these last six weeks because Habakkuk really relates to where we are today. Uh, Habakkuk is a guy who looks around his country and he questions God about all the things that are taking place. God, what about these laws and what about all these things that are making it hard for me to worship you and all these things that I don't like? God, aren't you going to do anything about it? Can't you step in and do something? How often have you been frustrated with things in our culture today? Okay, I hope all of you, okay. And now, I mean, seriously, this, this is on both sides of the aisle. If you are conservative, you're frustrated, the direction our country tends to go in terms of social values and socialism and abortion and uh, things like the fiasco in Afghanistan that the government is coming to try and take your guns all the time. If you're liberal, you're probably irritated the government isn't taking guns fast enough, that uh, health care and college isn't free, that the death penalty is still legal, and you're also upset about the fiasco in Afghanistan, because apparently that's the one thing we agree on today, is there is a fiasco in Afghanistan. Uh, but what Habakkuk does is he cries out to God. What we typically do is you cry out to God, or cry out why, and we cry out to Facebook, and all of our friends answer us, because our friends say the same thing we do to us, and like, oh yes, I'm, I must be right. Again, Habakkuk cries out to God. And he's got this complaint about the evilness in his culture. And God actually responds. Not on Facebook. He actually responds. But God's response is something Habakkuk doesn't like. God says, you know, all people are full of sin. And last week we looked at where God starts to talk about this idea of pride versus faith. And God says, I see what is going on. And I am going to do something about it. And God says, I'm going to discipline my people by sending the nation of Babylon into the kingdom of Judah. They will wipe out a good majority of the population and take the rest into captivity into Babylon. And Habakkuk responds with the second complaint and says, 
God, that's not a good plan. Is there another plan that we can come up with? Forget I said anything. Much like if we complained to God about our country and God said, yep, I hear it, I see it, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send China over and they're going to take over America and then I'll have my discipline. And you'd be like, why would you do that, God? They have human rights abuses. They bulldoze churches. They put pastors into jail and then re-indoctrinate them into their ideology. Why would you use a nation more wicked than us to discipline us. And that is Habakkuk's complaint. And really in the end, we got to understand that our things of who's bad and who's worth are all, are, are all gradations. They're just mental gymnastics of what we do. And so God, again, responds to Habakkuk. And he says, look, you think that I'm just doing this and letting them go. I'm not. I will take care of the Babylonians as well. I take care of all mankind. I take care of all sin. Uh, to still where the book ends, we're not going to get there today, obviously. But Habakkuk comes to a place where he finally says, God, I'm just going to trust you. In Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, out of the NIV, he says, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll be joyful in God my Savior. Though we have no food, everything is decimated, I will rejoice in you and I will be joyful in God my Savior. Our lives are like an analogy of like we're 10 minutes into the movie and we get frustrated and if you walk out of the movie, you're going to miss the best ending you've ever, ever seen. Some people say things like uh, try God or try Jesus. Some people say, well then, I did try God or I tried Jesus and he didn't work. Because we think if Jesus works and there's some issue in our lives, if it gets resolved the way that we want, well, then he worked. And if he didn't, doesn't get resolved the way that we want, maybe your marriage doesn't work out or your addiction doesn't go away, well, then obviously he didn't work because anything not working out in our lives obviously has nothing to do with us. I mean, how arrogant is that? A couple months ago, you see in the book of Job, Job is scraping boils off of his skin. And what does he say? He says, though he slays me, yet I will trust in him. Job's like, what else you gonna do? See, we're a people who typically want it easy and God wants holy and faithful people. And so he allows hardships in our lives. One commentator says this, God is not only big enough to get you out of trouble, he's big enough to let you get into it. And then he says, and then as we do, it starts to exercise faith like a muscle. God wants us to know who he is. He says, don't fight me and trust me. And one day you will see me face to face. And I think innately all people have this desire for that. And this is kind of where you have to start with Habakkuk. So open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. If you have an element Bible, that is page 509. And this is, again, the idea is that we trust God even when we don't understand what he is doing. In Habakkuk chapter 2, we're going to go through the entire chapter today. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, they are rising up. Uh, they're going to be wreaking havoc. And God is going to walk through and show what is at the heart of the Babylonian culture. And as he deconstructs that culture, you're going to see what's also at the heart of almost every culture, not almost, of every culture that has ever come about. And so as God deconstructs, I think we're going to be able to see us very clearly in it as well. And so God is going to give Habakkuk in chapter 2 five woes. You probably hear woe. You probably think Keanu Reeves, woe. But these are God-given woes, so it's much more serious. So where we left off last week, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6, woe number 1. 
Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Basically, he says, all that you have exploited are going to rise up against you. The Babylonians are very quickly becoming the most powerful and prosperous and therefore comfortable in their own nation people on the earth, but they do that by exploiting others. Now, let's take a step back and let's kind of see how this might look at us a little bit. Uh, Who are the richest people in the world today? I know you think it's the guy that has a dollar more than you. That's why people get so far in politics with class warfare. But in truth, we are the rich people in the world. And we have a comfort in our lives that we want to rebel against if someone, even God himself, wants to remove it from us. We all think we deserve to be comfortable and have no struggles. Even millennials today who are very into all the different justice movements, if you try and take something that they love away, they get very, very angry about it. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5, God says the Babylonians, they are arrogant. They're never at rest because they are greedy like the grave and they keep taking more and more and more. That they take all nations captive. And this is why their military is so strong and so powerful is that they are taking things from everybody. They are proud, they are arrogant, and yet they are empty. Now, are we like that? How about this? Uh, There are 90 countries in the world today that the people in those countries will spend less on their basic needs than you will spend on the garbage bags to throw out your trash this year. Think about that. You might say, uh, well, I don't have a nice house. Well, a lot of people would say, well, well you got a house. You know, that'd be nice. Uh, I don't have a nice car. Well, you got a car. <laughs> that'd be nice. We don't understand poverty. I think even our homeless, which, which is a problem, I'm not saying it's not, but even the homeless in America don't really understand true poverty. Now, is it a sin to have a nice house or a nice car? No, thank you. No, it is not. It's not a sin, but that shouldn't be where we get our comfort or our identity from. In the Bible, it is never rich versus poor. I know politics today, it's all rich versus poor. In the Bible, it's never rich versus poor. It is righteous versus unrighteous. That's what it comes down to. And God says to the Babylonians that those they have extorted are going to rise up and there will be justice. And I always worry when I talk like this because I don't want anybody to ever think I dislike America. I love America. I have been to a ton of other countries on this planet. And every time I come home, I go, thank you, Lord, that I was born in America. So I love America. But do we tend to be a people who become easily outraged and don't do a whole lot with our outrage? Yes, yes. And it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle you fall on. We all end up doing this. It's like, oh, those people are the problem. No, those people are the problem. And we look at them and want just somebody to fall. And we want to then say, oh, look, they fell. Oh, you can't believe anything they say. Yo, you can't trust them at all. Take this a a little step just more personal. Do we even consider where our stuff is made that we buy? Do we consider the conditions of people who make them? Do we give to charitable places to help? Even if you can't find time to help yourself, do you give to help? I mean, I can give you uh, all the things that Element helps and some of our GCs help out with right now. Uh, I am looking for different ways right now at a couple of different uh, places that are helping out Afghan rev- refugees are trying to like stay alive and not die in the midst of this whole mess is our heart for serving others around us or just for ourselves. And many times countries who exploit others, the people in those countries don't even realize what they are doing. They don't think about how they're exploiting. And that is woe number one. And God is just getting started. 
Woe number two, verse nine of chapter two. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. <laughs> that speaks to us today. Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Okay, so what's the woe here? It's really relating to the first one, which is getting rich through fraud or hurting other people or something like that. Now, we think we don't do that at all. But how about have you ever stolen something from a store or maybe gotten too much change, never said anything? You ever lied when you bought or sold a car on a pink slip? Ooh, okay. Uh, uh, you ever fudge on your taxes just a, a little bit? Now, how about this? A lot of states, goes with kind of what it starts here, a lot of states hate Californians because we kind of mess up our state, voting all kinds of weird things into place that destroy businesses and income. And then we are selling our overpriced houses and going to buy a mansion in Idaho or Tennessee, or someplace like that. And all the people who are there hate us because we bring all of our weirdness with us, thinking it wasn't all the policies we voted in that kind of destroyed our state. Like, they can't afford, afford to buy houses in their own states because we're messing up their, their home values. Well, the Babylonians would go in, and they would decimate everything. And then they would go back to their place and live in their comfort. It is the idea that we mess up things around us and then go build our big house away from all that we just messed up. Thugs tend to burglarize in places that are not their own neighborhoods. Companies will exploit workers in places like Taiwan and then go build a big bad house in Montecito. What God says is, woe to people who conduct themselves away from home like they never would at home. Think about toxic male culture today, right? When, when guys, you know, how they talk about women, how they treat women, but yet they never want their daughters treated that way. It's the same, it's the same thing. And the consequences, God says, all the, the riches that you have amassed are testifying to your guilt. It's really kind of funny how God says it because it says at the end of the age, he's going to judge. And the foundation of our house, the beams in our walls, or like you stole wood for your porch, you thought no one would know. And you come into the courtroom and God like brings in the porch and the porch is all, dum, 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 hello, because God can do that. Well, number two. Woe number three, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Can people in a city make a profit based on crime? Yes. Yes, they can. We call that Chicago. And we call that New York and Los Angeles and really probably just about any city. Do some towns allow bad behavior to go on because it's profitable? Yes. Uh, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. Think of how much money they make on beads and liquor. I mean, it, it's crazy. There was actually a debate in Nevada a couple years ago on should they tax the prostitutes? Not is it legal, but should we tax the prostitutes? There are certain things that we allow to happen if we can make a profit. Uh, how about pot? I cannot drive the back roads to Charlie's Burgers to Los Alamos without driving through that section now about two miles that smells like I ran over and skunked the entire way. I know you potheads, you think that pot doesn't reek. It stinks, man. And I got to drive that entire, I'm like, ah. Now, the government didn't find ways to put on a ballot and, and legalize pot because they thought all the potheads were correct. They did it because they wanted to tax your drugs. That's why they did it. You know, think about this. Uh, there was a church in Washington that needed new chairs for their facility. So they had a raffle. And the Washington state government stepped in and shut the raffle down because it was gambling. The Washington, Washington state has a lottery. How, how is that? There's actually someone quoted in this news story, not someone that went to the church, but this guy said, if the government can rip, off, rip you off, a church should be able to as well. <laughs> Funny, right? When a government and people don't say stop and instead, hey, let's tax it, or how do I make money on this? There's something wrong. And that's what God's saying. Verse 13, God says, Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. 
It's that God doesn't intend his people to labor in vain. Okay, now verse 14, we're going to skip that and come back to that at the end. Uh, woe number four actually has three parts to it, starting in verse 15. I hope this does not sound like your weekend, uh, but verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, and you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now, nakedness there. It is, a, it is the understanding of shame, of shame. And this is the idea of you lord your power over other people in order to manipulate them in some way. And that is a sin. We think we are such an enlightened species today, and yet the metaphor God uses 2,600 years ago is still valid. Think about colleges and frat parties. Is there an alcohol, is there a scale of alcohol to nudity? Of course there is. Ladies, I'm not saying you do this, but imagine you and your friends dress up really nice and you go to the club or a bar. Do you always have to buy your own drinks? No, you don't. Why? Because guys will start buying them for you. And it's not because guys like to give away money. It's because they have like this power. I've done this thing and they will have something over you. I have been to a bar before. No one's ever bought me drinks. I don't know why, but you know. <laughs> We, again, we are 2,600 years removed from this, and God's metaphor still works. And it is. People use their power to expose others in their shame so you can lord your strength over them. Uh, think of the Harvey Weinsteins. Think about even in a lot of churches today where a lot of these things are coming to light, how pastors have abused people in their churches and used their strength to keep people quiet. And what does God say? Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. You think you have so much glory? You don't. God says metaphorically that he will expose those. And those who were mocked and hurt and belittled will be vindicated. This is not a commentary on drinking. It's a commentary on being and how God calls us to live versus how the Babylonians and how a lot of our cultures live. The second part of woe number four, verse 17, it keeps going. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, you may not understand what they're talking about here. Uh, we have this term today that we use called environmental terrorism. And it refers to a bunch of different things, but one of the things it refers to is in war, uh, Many countries, what they will do is lay waste to certain areas in these countries in order to demoralize the populace so the populace will say to the government, stop this war. Uh, this happened a lot in World War II, in Vietnam, in World War I, and America just didn't do it. We don't actually do much of this anymore. We have smart bombs to just hit what we're trying to hit. But it happened for a lot of countries and a lot of places before, and this is what Babylon does. They go into an area. Here it's first talking about these forests of Lebanon. These, there's beautiful, pristine trees, and they would go through and burn it and cut it so all the people there were left destitute. They had no way to continue to make a living, to live off of the land. Now, is cutting down a tree a sin? No, no, I just saved your Christmas. You're, you're welcome. All right? But also in here, it talks about the beasts of the field. They would go through and kill all the animals they could find. So when they were gone, the people had no way to feed themselves. Now, is it a sin to kill an animal? No. God's the first one who does that in the book of Genesis, the cover of shameful people. But is it sinful to harm an animal without need? Well, yeah. 
And we take it to us, is it a sin to neglect your pet? I think so. I think it's really cool that God cares about animals. He even cares about cats. I don't, that's amazing. When, when God calls us to be good stewards in the world, it means we take care of what he has given us. Now, I don't think environmentalists are all wrong. I think many environmentalists just worship the wrong God. They worship creation and not the creator. But we're all supposed to steward the creation. Psalm 19, Romans 1 says, God's creation speaks a sermon about who he is. And we should not be a people who destroy that that sermon. On a very personal note, you should walk your dog. Don't want to think it runs the world. Don't want to jump up on people. Don't feed your cat till it's fat. You know, be a good pet owner. But on the larger sense, we must look at in the world, environmental terrorism. How do we keep our own selves from doing these things? Well, number three goes right into this, verse 18. So what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. This is one of the reasons why woe number four comes about, because they are worshiping themselves. They put place themselves in these places, basically in their idols, and worship themselves. Now, see if I can't help you in this as well. Uh, liberal people today will say harming the environment's a sin. Conservative people will say sex outside of marriage is a sin. Only the Bible says it's all a sin. It's all a sin. Conservative cultures and liberal cultures have their own sets of sins, but they're based on idols. And because they're based on idols, we make our moral goodness whatever we think that society should be. And the focus of societies become our moral goodness and not God and his grace. Every culture has within it idols. And because we have idols, we have within our cultures the seeds for destruction. And every time evil shows up, what we want to do is say, it's those people over there. If we got rid of those people, everything would just be better. We always want a scapegoat. I was talking to a friend of mine a couple months ago who said, is after another mass shooting, and they said, oh my goodness, uh, th this is because all those people who, who want to keep their guns and, and don't want to have gun laws are, are killing people. That, that's who do these mass shootings, right? And I said, actually, no. If you look at the stats, it is liberal, conservative, middle of the road. It's all over the board. It's not just one side. I know we want to say when somebody does, we're like, oh yeah, look, it's those people. Look what they believe. It's all over the board. It's a mental health issue. It's, it's people who are not having issues like that. Don't go out and try and kill a bunch of people. And that's what we have to understand in that. And that's what I, what I said to them. What we have to understand is our pride makes us think that we know better than everybody else. And only when we understand that our pride leads to idolatry and idolatry sits at the, at the heart of every single culture, whether it's liberal or conservative, capitalist or socialist, traditional or individualistic, we all have idols in the heart of who we are, and therefore we all have the seeds for destruction. And only when we understand that are you going to begin to understand where God is going in Habakkuk. Four down, last one. Woe number five. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. They are making false gods that tell them what they want. Now, we read a verse like this, and we think, oh, we're not primitive like that. You know, we don't make our own little gods and then worship our own little gods. We're not like those Buddhists or animalistic people or Hindus have, like, little boxes, and they put food in the altar or money in the altar or incense in the altar and then, then worship those, those little boxes. We're not like that, but what do we do? We go home, and we turn on our TV, our box, 
right? And we tithe to it. Uh, you know, I'll pay for my Hulu and my Netflix and my HBO Max. And oh, and then we start just praying, let there be something on. Will you bless me with drama or comedy or violence or nudity or something like that? God, please let there be something on so I can worship in devotion. Now, is TV a sin? No. You're like, Ugh. no, it's not. My wife and I love watching TV together. But if it becomes your God, it is. It is. When it comes God versus TV, who wins? And that can go for anything in our lives, from phone games to sports to your kids' sports to books to jobs to cars to bands to the way you look. Because in America, our idol is me. It is pride. And what God is saying is that our pride always leads to idolatry because in the end we tend to worship what we want and we worship ourselves. Our whole life is meant to be God's. That is our jobs, our relationships, our our money, our diet, our pets, our school. And we can either use that in a way that is for God and honoring to Him or a way that is against Him. We have to ask, what do our passions and energy go towards? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guys, you follow your money, you're going to find where your heart is. You find where you spend your time, you're going to find your passion. And when you find your passion, you're going to find your God. What do we give our effort and our time and our energy to? And many times it's ourselves and how we feel and what we want instead of what God calls us to. Alexander Sholtenitsyn was a famous Russian novelist and poet. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970 for a book that he wrote called The Gulag Archipelago. And in this book, he confronts communism and internment camps. And when you think he's going to get to the place where he just talks about how bad the communists as a people are, this is what he actually says. So let the reader who expects this book to be a political expose slam its covers closed right now. If only we're all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Like, oh, it's those evil people. We get rid of those. We're going to have paradise. He says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. He says, it's not just China. It's not just North Korea. It's not just Babylon. It's not just Judah. It's not just America. He goes on and says this, confronted by the pit into which we are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt stricken dumb. It is, after all, only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. Yeah. And that's a profoundly Christian Habakkuk even way of understanding things. He says that line between good and evil that we all think we know is not as clear as we think. And as terrible as Babylon is, pride comes from every human heart because idolatry ends up being at the center of every human culture. And it is why God will discipline Israel. It is why God will discipline Babylon. Every culture has within it things that we idolize, and some things are demonized. And we think the things that we idolize are the things that are going to save us. If we just get rid of the bad, evil people that don't like the things that we like, well, then everything's going to be better. The Christianity comes in. Christianity says, no, our problem is human sin. And the answer is Jesus Christ. And I know a lot of you guys love talking politics. I don't try and do it up here very much, although this might sound like a political sermon. It is not at all. It's not meant to be. It's just, I'm just I'm going with God's says here, okay? But do you know how dangerous it is not to have a Christian view of things when it comes to even talking about politics? Because in politics, you've got to realize the line between good and evil goes down the middle of every human heart and every political party. 
In the media today, people have said about Christianity, if you believe that you have God's absolute truth, well, then you're going to be an oppressor. You're going to divide the world into good and bad people. And I think it's so funny because even them saying that question, they've just done exactly what they said we are going to do. But do you know what you say when people say that to you? You say, it depends on what you think absolute truth is. Because we think absolute truth is the gospel. And if it is the gospel, then we know the problem is sin. And the answer is grace. The answer is Jesus. The answer is what Jesus has done to rescue us. The answer is not the problem is those people, and the answer is these people. This is why there are two key verses in chapter 2 in what God speaks about in this. All this darkness and death and judgment and wrath and bloodshed and woes. God says two things in here which are very important. The first one is chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. In the midst of the woes, God says, my name must go out into the world. And he is actually going to use this travesty of the Babylonians coming in to make his name go out into the world. The only way people get free from their pride and their idolatry is by God's name going out. God's plan is that his words would go out into the world. You want people to know Christ? You want culture to change? You want things to look different? We speak of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how the world changes. You want people to start returning to churches? You go invite them. You get them. You, you bring them back. And we stop treating God like a vending machine for our own comfort. Oh, God wants to agree with me and all the things that I like. Chapter 2, verse 20, the second thing is, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You get to the end of Habakkuk 2, and it says, God's in his holy temple. Now, I know a lot of times you think, oh, yeah, God just sits in heaven and doesn't do anything. No, this is the understanding that God has never once been moved. God is solid. He is secure. No one has ever removed him or done something that God did not allow, that God is in control. How do we have hope in the world? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and God is sure, and he is immovable, movable, 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 whatever. This is how hope works. In the midst of our darkness, we can face anything because no matter what, God is still God and he is good and he is good. No matter how bad things get or bad things look, God is in control. When things look chaotic in the world, God says, I'm still in charge. And what that means is, yes, we can make a lot of decisions that mess up a whole lot of things in the culture around us. Our decisions actually count. And yet God says, I have a plan. I am going to weave this all together into my ultimate glory and your ultimate good. This is what theologians like to call antinomy. Antinomy uh, looks like a contradiction, but it's actually not. So when God says, I'm in control, I am sovereign, everything will come together according to my well will, and yet every single person is responsible for what they do. We tend to look and say, well, if God is sovereign in control of everything, then I'm just a puppet. Or if my decisions count, I can mess up God's plan. Antinomy. Okay? We are responsible for what we do, and yet God is still sovereign and weaves everything together. The light in our darkness is that God has never left his throne. He is always there. And when evil times come, people will get cynical and angry. They blame others. They lose hope. And I have seen many Christians act this way. We, get, we lose our hope. We freak out about everything. Not that we shouldn't step in and try and make a difference. But we are the people in the world who should have hope because God's name is going to go out into the world. And God has never once not been in control. And we trust him in that. We should be humble. We should admit our part in the places that we have done what's wrong, but also trust God for his truth. 
we get to have hope in the world because the gospel humbles us out of our self-centered pride in a way that we can have more confidence in him than we've ever had before. And in the end, we can say, yes, it should be different than this. Things should look different. We can step in and try and make a difference. But we realize only true change comes from the inside out. And so we must be those who speak of the good news of the gospel, of Christ coming to live in us. As you go through chapter 2 and it is, whoa, 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 five woes, right? But God is still good and God is still God. That's what it tells us. God explains to Habakkuk his ultimate goal is that my name would go out. This is how the entire world changes. And in the end, God says, so let all the earth keep silence. What that is is take a moment and think about this. Think about what I have said. And it's really kind of cool where we go next week and what Habakkuk comes out of his time of reflecting of what God is doing in his life. God says, Habakkuk, there has never been one point in the entire human history where I have not been in control, and I love you. Be silent and trust me. And for us, what we need most of the time is not more information. We need to trust the information that we do have and live in faith and trust. You know, we don't need necessarily always know more. We need to trust what we know. And what do we know? We know the gospel, that Christ has come to rescue and save us, that Jesus has stepped into time to take our sin upon himself, that all of the crazy things that we have ever done are never going to be able to remove us from his love and his grace given to us. And this is why we come to a place of communion every week. It's a place to remember what Christ has done in the good news to rescue and save us and bring us to himself. It's why you take the cracker and you, and you break it and you drink the grape juice. It's a reminder of what God has done to rescue us, that we would be those who speak about the good news of God's rescue. We don't have the, we think we have the answers, but we don't have the answers. Jesus is the one who rescues and saves and brings people to himself. The whole world will only come together and stop fighting all these stupid wars when we are centered on the person of Christ. He brings unity, which means we must be those who speak about him. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Uh, as, as they do, guys, I, I think it's important for us to understand that we are meant to have confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And too often, we have so little confidence in the gospel. We think that all of our political answers are what's going to fix the world. We don't think the gospel actually changes things. I was talking to someone, uh, probably at the beginning of COVID about this, and they were getting involved in this particular cause and stuff. And not that the cause was bad. It, it wasn't at all. But I said, do you expect the cause to change the world? Or do you expect the gospel to be the thing that changes the world? Because their entire mind was about, if this movement goes forward, this will happen, and these things will take place. And I'm like, yeah, great, great. But what does it matter if everybody comes to the place and follows this cause that you have, and yet no one has ever heard about Jesus Christ? It doesn't matter. Because we are just lifting up our idols when we don't have confidence in the gospel. So we speak of the gospel. And this is what God is pointing Habakkuk to. Next week, you're going to see that Habakkuk sings a song based out of what he understands as the gospel. And they're, and they're beautiful words that draw him to a place of remembering what God has done. And this is why every week we do take to communion as a reminder of what God has done. So we would live in great confidence of his hope and his rescue in the crazy, tumultuous world that we have today. And that his name would go forth by what we say and what we do. If you need prayer, talk to Michelle or Sarah at the Welcome Center. We'll connect you with somebody. You know, maybe you're just so out of sorts because of all that's taken place. Well, we'd love to be able to pray with you. 
and maybe you know, steer you to who Christ is and what he's calling us in, in our lives. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. And so we give that opportunity every single week. And then grab the, the questions at the bottom of the sermon notes, just a way to reflect. Is our confidence really in Christ? Or is there confidence in all these things that we place our hope into that are not him? Then how can we help one another step back and understand the gospel? to have gospel-centered conversations with gospel hope as the center of what we do. And that hopefully in the end, God would break all of us of our pride, like he is doing to his people in the book of Habakkuk. Then he would rebuild us as a people who have confidence in him and what he does to rescue and save us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and that you would do that. You would break our pride. You would move us from the place where we think we have all of the answers And you would move us to a place where we trust you, that our confidence comes in what you have done, that we understand your great rescue of us, what the gospel truly is. And then we get our eyes off ourselves and our own desires and all the things that we think we want that are going to fulfill us and make us feel so good and come to a place of simple, humble trust in you. that we would be a people who understand that you hold us, that we'd be those who metaphorically cling to the cross as the understanding of our salvation and our restoration. And we would sing and speak of your mercy given to us, that we would be people who long to gather together to worship you corporately and individually, as we understand what the gospel truly brings. Salvation to us, salvation for all of creation, the restoration of all that you intended to do. Teach us to be those who speak of this clearly and to trust you and to calm down and learn how to be silent before you. Teach us to trust the good news. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. As we're doing every week now, we are going to drop the shades. Uh, We are going to take just a couple moments to give you a chance to kind of reflect and think about this. Maybe take a couple moments right now and think about what you have placed your hope in that is not the gospel. What is your confidence been in that is not the gospel? What do you think is the answer to the world that is not the gospel? And without a whole lot of distractions around, just take a moment and ask God to reveal that to you. And that he would then steer you back to the understanding of where our hope truly comes from. And that we'd be a people who speak of that hope and what we say and what we do.